independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. I hope you're really prioritizing your needs and the needs of your loved ones and community during this pandemic. But if you are able to support our independent show starting at just $2 per month, that'd be so helpful and better enable us to continue this work. And that's greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. I also wanted to mention since this time of social distancing may be stressful, especially for our mental health, we've decided to open up our regen Generation-focused digital community to all of our listeners. So, if you'd find it helpful to have a safe space online to connect with others like you and to dive deeper into the topics we discuss on the show, you can head to network.greendreamer.com to sign up. Insurance data is suggesting maybe as high as fifty-two percent of our children now have a chronic disease by the time they're or disorder by the time they're seventeen. And so with this huge epidemic of dysfunction in the entire population, we th- see things like autism in our children uh, all the way to you know cancer in our adults, Parkinson's, neurologic conditions like Parkinson's and MS and ALS and Alzheimer's dementia all increasing over the last couple decades since our advent of wide-scale genetically modified herbicide-grown foods. So the correlations are very good at the public health level. This is part one of our conversation with Dr. Zach Bush, a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He's also an internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health. We had this conversation before our coronavirus pandemic, but there are just so many crucial parallels that we have to draw between ecological health and human health, especially during this time, which makes this episode really pertinent and definitely a must listen. We're going to go over things like how the use of agrochemicals took over and became the norm in the field of agriculture, the ties between how we treat our soils and the consequential health impacts that we then experience, and so much more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Yeah, so the nonlinear journey for me was after about 15 years in the environment of Western medicine, academic medicine, and the hospital systems and big university setting, started to realize that my cancer research, as well as my clinical care with pharmaceutical management of diseases as diverse as 
high blood pressure and heart disease to, to diabetes and cancer were all based on a model of disease control rather than health. And as I came to terms with the fact that my chemotherapy was never going to solve the problem in that there had never been a case of cancer in human history caused by a lack of chemotherapy, I started to realize that I had been studying for many years an approach to changing the course of disease but not changing the course of health. And so that was when I started to reset my sights on what would it look like to change that philosophy or that paradigm and, and to kind of a prevention and really deeper than prevention, a bigger question of like, what does optimal health look like biologically on, on our microscope, let alone in a human being? And so with that change in perspective, quickly settled on nutrition as the biggest access point to changing physiology, changing the health trajectory of a human being or an animal, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so with that journey into nutrition, suddenly realized that the nutrition science of the last 40 years wasn't applying well to our current patient population. We saw a lot of patients that were having little, if any, response to good nutrition in regard to their biologic markers of inflammation, insulin sensitivity or diabetes and the like. And we had a portion of our patients that were actually getting worse, not better. And so that population really encouraged us to look deeper than the nutrition science of the last 40 years to start to consider the soil and the microbiome science that was emerging in the 2005 to 2010 time frame. We were starting to realize that the microbiome or the biology of bacteria, fungi, parasites, and viruses as this huge ecosystem was somehow dictating human health. We could find correlations between the disruption of the microbiome and different types of disease. You you lose this portion of the microbiome and you get cancer of the prostate. You lose a different portion and you get breast cancer. So these correlations were being made, but the causation hadn't been sorted out. And so we dove into that crossroads between soil health, plant health, food systems, and human health as it cross-sections at the, at the microbiome. And so that was the journey into kind of understanding or seeing the world really coming to a nexus of understanding that ecological collapse that we see around us with global warming, destruction of topsoils and agricultural lands throughout the world, the increase in everything from wildfires to extreme weather patterns all being tied back to microbiome damage on the large scale of soil ecology correlating in time and in severity very closely with the human health and chronic disease epidemics that we had seen starting in the 1990s and then accelerating over the last two decades. So this correlation and now starting to understand causation between those worlds is really an exciting point where we may be able to change the trajectory of where we're headed by starting to understand these micro and macro ecosystems of bacteria, fungi, and beyond. Your work today centers a lot around regenerative agriculture. And something that gives me great hope is knowing that we weren't always this reliant on agrochemicals as we are today. So there is a way to do things differently, and there is a way out of this. Can you give us a picture of how agrochemicals came to dominate the field of agriculture and what sorts of false promises were made to make that change appealing to farmers? Yeah, so it started as really towards the end of World War II with something called the Green Revolution, where with the sudden overproduction of, of fuel from fossil oil reserves that had been 
accelerated over the course of the mechanized war of World War II is the most gasoline we'd ever used in the history of mankind in those few years of the war. Suddenly, with the decrease in demand, there was a need for a new marketplace for all of that petroleum. And so petroleum fertilizers were developed for large-scale agriculture. And this seemed like a total boon to farmers that were still struggling to emerge from the Dust Bowl of the 1920s and 30s that had led to wide-scale famine in the United States. There were soup lines throughout the 1930s through many of the agricultural states that were starving, coal mining states and the like. The, the economy had just been crushed by the destruction of topsoil that had happened through poor farming practices, lack of crop rotation, over tilling of the land. Through all of these different mechanisms, we, we predisposed our, our agricultural system to massive drought risk and collapse of topsoil ecology in the Dust Bowl buried whole towns and and feet of dust in those years. And so it seemed like an easy fix to be pouring these petroleum products onto our crops and they suddenly turn green and they grow at rates that had never been seen before with typical farming. So it seemed like we had solved not only the crisis of soil, but perhaps could now feed the world and end starvation on a grand scale because of how productive the crops seemed to be. The problem was that as we continue to artificially boost up the biology of these plants with sodium, potassium, I'm sorry, uh, potassium, nitrogen, and the petroleum fertilizers, we were kind of creating an artificial health. It looked green. The plants seemed to be ro- robust in their production, but unfortunately, their immune systems and their capacity to produce the little communication network that would keep weeds checked and pests at bay started to falter. So we were growing a lot of crops, but they were becoming vulnerable to pests and weed invasion. And so we responded as a chemical pharmaceutical kind of mindset industry with more herbicides and pesticides than it had ever been necessary or or believed possible just decades earlier. And so with that advent of chemical herbicides and pesticides throughout the 1950s and 60s to address these weakened crops that we were growing under nitrogen, potassium, fertilizers, we started to birth the modern era of mega farms under huge chemical management. The promise that you asked about that the farmers had been induced into this behavior was A, easy to grow big, fast-growing plants, but B, a decrease in labor when it came to weeding and the like. And so farmers could now go from managing a few acres to maybe 100 acres to managing thousands of acres with the same workforce because they can now do it through a purely mechanized version of spraying all these chemicals onto the soils and onto the plants and into the fields in general. So with that ease of of large-scale management, we saw scales of farming that had never been witnessed in human history before. Mm. It's been taken to an extreme in places like Australia and Canada where average farm sizes are typically in the twenty to 40,000 acre plots. And so that, that vast area now managed by just a few hands was a big paradigm shift that seemed to promise a healthier and more robust future for food production. Did that actually help to improve the livelihoods of our farmers? One would expect that to be the case, and that was certainly the promise that they could grow more crops and they could have higher yields in these these crops. But unfortunately, that's short-lived. And so as they continued under these chemical agricultural practices, as, as the soils continued to be destroyed by 
the antibiotic effects of all of these herbicides and pesticides, we started to get sterile soil. And as you kill the microbial diversity and vitality of the soil, it requires more and more inputs. So you have to pour in more petroleum fertilizers, which create more and more weakened plants when it continues to lack the larger intelligence of the microbiome. And with that collapse, you demand more and more herbicides and pesticides. And so that that was really where we were at by the mid-1990s. And then it really got out of hand when we genetically modified our crops to be able to be sprayed directly with Roundup. And so for the first time, we no longer were trying to spray weeds. We were applying the herbicide or weed killer Roundup to entire massive croplands directly. And for the first time, we were eating food that was directly laced with this water-soluble toxin that we would be now eating and drinking in our food and our water systems that were collecting this water-soluble toxin as it ran off into river systems, ocean, and beyond. Mm. And so that was the slippery slope towards the collapse of ecology, which made that farming got more expensive every year, which meant that the profit that these farmers were making declined every year. And so now we have 6,000 to 8,000 farms a year going out of business, and it's largely because there's been a whole generation, if not two generations, of farm children that have left the farms for more lucrative and seemingly rewarding careers because they're watching their parents fail in increasing severity with each passing year under this chemical agricultural model. Mm-hmm. And so with that lack of pathway to success on the farms, we now have a, a dearth of, of opportunity to hand those farms off to the next generation. The next generation has moved on from farming to tech and, and engineering and consumer product production and all these other things that drive the economy today that seem far different than the agricultural security that we need as a country. Right. So it should be no surprise to us that I believe suicide rates among farmers are one of the highest among all industries. And I guess it's also kind of ironic that a lot of the children of these farming communities or the farmer families, they go, they move into cities for these opportunities in tech, as you mentioned, driving the new economy that's further disconnecting us from, from nature and from the sort of regenerative lifestyle that we need to get back to for our health and for the ecosystems that we depend on. Yeah, I'd say that's spot on. So there's an increasing lack of expertise within our our population on how to even grow our own food. And so we're becoming more and more vulnerable in our food security. You know, and this is getting clear that our farmers no longer grow food. They grow commodities that are being turned into feed for protein production and, and large-scale feedlots of cows, poultry, and, and swine. It's being turned into ethanol for fuel additives. It's being turned into fiber for clothing, uh, including things like polyester and other oil-based clothing apparel materials. And so you now get to the point where Kansas, for example, being our most agriculturally dense state, some 90% of the acreage within Kansas is under agricultural use. And yet Kansas has to import 90% of its food around the year because it doesn't grow food. It grows stuff for processed foods for the animals or processed chemicals for fuel or processed stuff for our clothing. So it's a just devastating reality that our, our most fertile farmlands have been turned away from food production. Mm. The only state that's really growing a lot of organic produce is really California and maybe two others in Pennsylvania and Oregon. 
But outside of those three states, you've really got just commodities crops being put into non-food environments. On a person-to-person level, it's always hard to tell the exact causes of their chronic illnesses. But at a population level, there's been an undeniable increase, too large to just be an accident. In your documentary, Farmer's Footprint, you say that in 1965, just 4% of the population had a chronic disease. And today, 46% of our children alone have a chronic disease. How certain are we that our public health is being compromised specifically because of our transition towards big ag that's reliant on agrochemicals? Yeah, so that number has even gotten higher in the last year. Uh, Recent analysis of insurance data suggesting maybe as high as 52% of our children now have a chronic disease by the time they're or disorder by the time they're 17. Wow. And so with this huge epidemic of dysfunction in the entire population, we see things like autism in our children all the way to cancer in our adults, Parkinson's neurologic conditions like Parkinson's and MS and ALS and Alzheimer's dementia all increasing over the last couple decades since our advent of wide-scale genetically modified herbicide-grown foods. So the correlations are very good at the public health level. So you see number of acres sprayed with Roundup correlated with the number of liver cancer, bladder cancer, leukemias, lymphomas. You know, across the board, we see this acre per acre risk factor for the population. Furthermore, we we changed the cancer maps in the United States radically between 1996 and 2007. In that short decade, we reversed the cancer map in the sense that the Northeast and sometimes the Northwest, depending on the cancer, were always our hotbeds for cancer death risk. Over the 10 years between 1996 and 2007, we see that map reverse. Now, cancer went up across the whole country in, in regard to especially cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, but the explosion of that cancer risk really happened in the South. And so looking at the southern Midwest all the way down into Mississippi and Louisiana now being the hotbed of cancer. And that had never happened. That was never our cancer pattern in human history in the United States. And so we just saw this massive epidemic happen in the deep south and and southern Midwest. When you correlate that then with the river systems that are picking up this water-soluble compound of Roundup, you realize that for every concentration event that we have with that chemical into the water system, we see an equal increase in the cancer risk in that state and the risk of death from cancer in that state. So it's been an extraordinary journey into recognizing that our farming policies and our farming practices of genetically modified Roundup Ready crops allowing us to spray our food system directly with this chemical, the widespread use now at 4 billion pounds worldwide, 300 million pounds just in the United States alone. All of that ending up in our river systems correlates perfectly with these health events and crises that we now see emerging. We have also now started working on causation, so those public health correlations between the amount of Roundup sprayed and the amount of cancer in the water, you know, water distribution areas, we're now understanding to be linked through the microbiome. And so it turns out that Roundup as an herbicide functions as an antibiotic. It kills bacteria, fungi, parasites, and the like. And so by constantly sterilizing our soils and losing the microbiome, we now understand that the loss of biodiversity in the microbiome is the cause of many diseases. Everything from autoimmune conditions onto cancer, from mood disorders onto acne, this change in the microbiome of our skin, our sinuses, our gut, 
all now in, attributed to and understood to be the root cause of disease epidemics. Mm. And so our farming practices by mechanism have destroyed the microbiome, which have left us vulnerable as a species. Now, how exactly does that work? So when the soil microbiology is compromised and when our soils are sterilized, how exactly does that tie back to our microbiome? So is it because these chemicals are on the food that we eat and when we eat, when we ingest the chemicals, that also kills or disrupts our microbiome as well? Or how, how do we connect those two things? And it connects through multiple levels that our laboratory has been working on for the last six years. One of these levels is through the antimicrobial effect that you mentioned there. So as the herbicide is concentrated within the food and water and we drink that or eat that, we now have that antibiotic effect of Roundup in our gut. So we do the same decimation of our gut over time as you might get from a antibiotics from your physician. The difference, though, is instead of being three days, seven days, or, or 14 days of antibiotics, it's now a daily low-grade exposure. We know that daily long-term exposure to an antibiotic leads to overgrowth of just a few species. In farming, we call these weeds. In the human system, we call these pathogens or you know, dangerous bacteria. The only thing that made them dangerous was the loss of biodiversity and, and the, the chemical pressure for these to be the few species that can survive that environment. Suddenly, they become the invasive dominant species that overwhelms the, the what was a, a balanced ecosystem. And so we're fo forcing these changes in human guts, skin, sinuses, throughout the, the organ systems within the body that are now understood to also contain bacteria, things like the lung, the breast, the prostate, you know, all the kidneys, brain, all of these areas within our body now understood to be populated by healthy microbiome. And if we're chronically exposing that to a potent antibiotic, we're losing that microbiome workforce and the protection it provides the human body. So number one is antibiotic exposure, not just at the soil level, but through the gut and human body at many levels. The next vulnerability is through the mechanism of Roundup, which binds up bioavailable resources. And so it acts as a chelator and binds critical minerals and, and micronutrients in soil so they are not available to the plants that would then become our food and deliver those critical micronutrients to our bodies. And so we become deficient or starving for, for nutrients within our food system with this widespread use of Roundup. The next step of damage comes from the mechanism by which the Roundup chemical kills weeds. Monsanto published this data way back in the 1970s when they, they viewed the chemical in 1974 to 76 time frame. And with that, those initial patents, we see this shikimate pathway. This is an enzyme pathway that's very unique to bacteria, fungi, and plants. Humans, earthworms, cats, dogs, etc., don't have this enzyme pathway. And so we cannot actually produce the amino acids, which are the protein building blocks that the bacteria, fungi, and plants are able to to produce. Therefore, we call these the essential amino acids. And of the 22 building blocks, the 22 amino acids that make up a human body, there's only there's only 11 that we can produce, or, or 12, depending on how you're counting it. There's nine essential amino acids that, that are necessarily obtained through our food. And Roundup, at, via Monsanto's patents, is demonstrated to block that enzyme pathway so that the food and bacterial system can no longer make these essential amino acids. When you're eating food and have a gut that can no longer produce these amino acids, now you become deficient in the building blocks for proteins, which of course are the, the structural functional capacity of the body. 
proteins turn into structural things that can anchor cells together and help them function well there. But they also are the pathways for detoxification, metabolism of nutrients into fuels, from fuels into electrons and the transfer of electrical energy in our cells. All of these are protein-mediated pathways and functions that make life happen. And so when you start misspelling or assembling those proteins incorrectly because you're missing some of the building blocks, you start to get oddly shaped and dysfunctional proteins. So this is seen at many levels in human biology. When we start to misfold or, or misrepresent the proper structure of tight junctions in our gut wall or vascular system or blood-brain barrier, we start to get leak. Everybody now has heard of leaky gut on some level, but we've been able to demonstrate that once that leaky gut is induced by Roundup, you also get leaky brain, leaky kidneys, and the like. And so your whole system with this protein damage and altered protein structures due to the lack of these essential amino acids makes us very vulnerable to chronic disease and dysfunction. Wow. The last area that we've demonstrated the functional damage from Roundup is actually in the direct toxicity to these tight junction protein systems. And so not only is there a deficiency of amino acids to build healthy proteins, there's also a direct protein toxicity to the Roundup molecule. And so as we eat it, drink it, breathe it, there's about 75% of our rainfall detectable for Roundup. There's 75% of the air we breathe detectable for Roundup. And so as we're constantly being exposed to this day in and day out, we start to leak as the tight junction Velcro between our cells starts to fall apart. And so we get leaky gut, leaky brain, leak across the whole system. And so these are the mechanisms by which we've developed this chronic disease epidemic through the widespread exposure to this chemical roundup. Number one, antimicrobial effect. Number two, mineral chelation. So we no longer have the mineral micronutrient availability to plants and therefore to humans or animals. And then third is that that protein misfolding, protein dysfunction due to a lack of essential amino acids as the shikimate pathway is blocked by Roundup. And then finally is this direct toxicity to protein adhesion and you're getting leak across the whole system. I feel like one could look at all the technological advances and ongoing new research in medicine we're making and feel like we're only constantly making progress for our health. But one key and really alarming connection to make is that oftentimes pharmaceutical companies are the same companies that make GMO seeds and the agrochemicals that make people sick to begin with. For example, Monsanto and Bayer are the same company. I'm guessing the answer is no, but is this a coincidence or what business would they have in wanting to merge the two industries? Well, I think it's kind of a nice business model in the end, you know, and what their exact <laughs> impetus is could be debated endlessly probably. But it's an interesting phenomenon where if yet another mechanism of Roundup is, is by blocking that shikimate pathway, it eliminates a lot of the alkaloids, which are the medicine within our food. And these alkaloids have long been turned into the drugs that we produce as pharmaceutical companies or, or researchers. And so I was involved in, in changing the shape of vitamin A, for example, into different drugs. And this, with these alkaloids, you don't even have to change the shape of them to get drug-like qualities. And so one of the common chemotherapies that's out there is this compound called vincristine, which is the result of just a normally occurring alkaloid compound made by green plants in very high concentrations and things like algaes and the like. And so the pharmaceutical company is able to grow, you know, these green beds of algae and they produce tons of vincristine and then they extract the vincristine 
And this naturally occurring compound now can be sold back to consumers at extreme you know, results. We're selling vincristine by $28,000 a gram or something like that now. So it's an extremely lucrative field to sell these compounds made by plants back to consumers. And if that company selling vincristine also happens to own the company that sprays our food with the compound that would block the ability of our food to carry vincristine, then, then you can kind of see the model emerging perhaps of, well, if we delete the medicine from the food, but then we sell it back to them at a higher price point, maybe we, we win the game. So whether that's you know thought out or accidental coincidence that that's what's happening, I don't know. But it is seemingly a really nice business model. If we, if we delete nutrients from the food system, then they're going to need everything from multivitamins to drugs to manage the deficiencies that have been created through the, the chemical agriculture. Hmm. It's hard not to be angry when learning about how they're sort of creating the issues and then selling the solutions to people. Same to farmers and the same to the general public. It is, you know, there's a risk of, of just slipping into hopelessness and anger towards just general human greed. But there's also an opportunity here where we, instead of channeling our energy into that anger, start to realize we can simply create a different industry. We can create a completely different consumer environment. We can create a completely different production system that now gets away from those chemical dependencies and creates a much higher value product out of the farm again that consumers are going to want to pay for. Consumers that are given a product that is high in bionutrients, therefore just delivers a high degree of health and health support and doesn't have the chemical damage done by the, the conventional agricultural systems, that's going to be a very valuable piece of food. And so I think we have to start at that high-value targets. And you know, ironically, right now, one of the, the things that's driving regenerative markets the fastest is things like the CBD hemp industry. Because there's so much money to be made there, it's easy for these companies to do research on optimizing their plant health and they get to prove that very quickly when they start to take care of the soil. And so that and the wine industry is starting to finally wake up to the fact that they've, they've killed their own industry through chemical agriculture. The average California wine is, th is now recognized to have as many as 64 different herbicides and pesticides present in that glass of wine. And consumers are waking up to that. They don't want toxic wine. They don't want food that's depleted of nutrients. And so consumer demand can very quickly reshape these these high yield high dollar industries of drugs and alcohol and then we can shift that demand and awareness of the consumer towards you know a simple tomato or brussels sprouts or the kale sitting on the shelf and we can start to move that whole industry back to a new methodology called regenerative agriculture that you mentioned at the beginning regenerative agriculture is a much different approach than than just organic agriculture as it's been labeled by the usda Walk with me. We're under the same sun with oceans all around. Yet it's not, it's not how we should be. Many of us fight for basic things in life, so let's breathe. 